All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Glad you are back. Uh, sorry about last week with the snow, but I think it was the right decision to uh, do what we did without all that sloshiness that came in. Uh, so welcome again to this gathering of Providence Baptist Church. Um, and even though uh, we've only been back in Hebrews for one week with the snow, we are going to take a break from it today. Um, so we had part one, we had part two, it's just going to have like an interlude of a couple of weeks in between before we get back and finish up Hebrews chapter nine. But the reason we're going to do that is because like we do every year for the last decade, uh, we are going to take the time today to draw our attention to the link that should exist between Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and Sanctity of Life Sunday. Those things should be 100% linked Martin Luther King Jr. holiday has historically been, uh, you know, a call to help end the evil that is racism. And the Sanctity of Life Sunday has historically been a call to help end the evil that is abortion. And those two things should be linked, not just because they're close together on the calendar, but because they are close together in the heart of God. And theologically and biblically, they're tied at the hip. Because they are both God issues. They are both sanctity of life issues. The problem is, a lot of times, inside the church and outside the church, these two things are treated almost as like polar opposites. And so I'll never forget the first time I heard John Piper say that his observation is that a lot of times the people who are you know, passionate about combating abortion are not the same people who are compassionate or or who who are passionate about combating racism. And the people who are who are who are who are passionate about combating racism are not the same people a lot of times that are passionate about combating abortion. But these two things should be together. They are both sanctity of life issues. They are equally sanctity of life issues. And as the people of God, the church should be passionate about both, because God is passionate about both. But they're not the only sanctity of life issues. And so over the last decade, I've tried to open our eyes to many other facets of the sanctity of life. From human trafficking, 2012, to poverty, to refugees, to illegal immigrants, individuals with special needs, those with disability, orphans, the elderly, and obviously racism and the unborn. Okay, calling for us to be pro-life all the way, to have a consistent life ethic, to not just contend for those things that your particular political persuasion may supposedly champion, but to contend for all the things that our king actually does champion. The sanctity of all human life. That every person has a soul. Every person. And every person is made by God on purpose with a purpose. But that's not the culture we live in, is it? We don't live in a culture of life. We live in a culture of death. That's where we live. But just as the stars shine brightest on the darkest of nights, even so, the church can shine brightly a culture of life in the midst of a culture of death. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Some of this will just be straight up informing. It's kind of what has been over the last several years, opening, trying to you know, open our eyes to certain things. 
That's part of what today is. And so it's a very different kind of sermon. But here's what I want to do. Number one, I want to try to begin unmasking the modern idea of progress. Just chat a little bit about that. Number two, I want to point us to uh, or perhaps remind us of a better way. A culture of life, not a culture of death and consistency in that. Not being like, well, I'll take a culture of life for these people, but culture of death for these people, that's fine. We're to be consistent in these things. And then number three, a sort of, so what now? What, what do we do with this? All right, so that's where we're going to go. Number one, unmasking progress. Number two, uh, a better way. And then number three, so what now? All right, and so number one, we're going to build to looking at some scripture in a minute. So again, a very different, not just jumping in. This is a, we're building to some things here. And so just, first of all, we've got to begin unmasking progress. I just want us to think through this a little bit. Unmasking progress. And so growing up in the 80s and living, you know, within about an hour of Atlanta, we did not have cable TV because it did not, um, like you had to have so many houses per mile to make it worth their while to put it in. And we didn't meet that criteria. So we did not have cable TV, so we had, you know, an antenna up on the pole. And so most of the time we had that thing pointed towards Atlanta. And then every now and then we get outside and you start twisting it. And Dad's inside, you know, we're trying to point it towards Chattanooga. Too far, you know, and you twist it back too far that way until you get it, you know, a fairly clear picture. But being halfway, you know, fairly close to Atlanta, we were able to pick up a cable television because TBS, Turner Broadcasting, that was out of Atlanta and he broadcast it through the antenna. And so I was able, this Channel 17 down there, I was able to watch like all the Braves games, all Andy Griffith shows that have ever been aired, all the Gilligan's Islands. Like I've seen all these things. They they broadcast them. It was pretty cool. But the highlight for me on TBS was NWA Wrestling, right? National Wrestling Alliance. When that came on, big time. Loved it. All the characters. WWF was later. I didn't get into that. But NWA. This was where it was at. And matter of fact, my cousin was a wrestler. All right, we'll put his picture up here. Uh, this is the nightmare Ted Allen. All right, he's wrestled more in like some smaller things, the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Federation and whatnot. But he trained, if you're familiar with NWA, he trained Arn Anderson, part of the Four Horsemen. And then uh, he later trained Big Boss Man that was in WWF. So. I mean, I could just sit here and go on for hours about sitting, green carpet in our living room, TV box in the living room that was probably like 500 pounds, you know, turn the dial on here, and me and my brother and my dad just watching all of this. But the point I want to make is, um, you know, he wore a mask, right? And when he took the mask off, you would see that he's just... Ted Allen Lipscomb, right? My grandmother was a Lipscomb. This is, you know, he's just a cousin. But when he wore the mask, I mean, he was a nightmare. But when he took it off, you could see who he was underneath. And as we think about progress in the modern society, progressivism, if we take the mask off of it and look underneath to see who's really under there, it's a culture of death. And so I really want us to just ask the question, is progressivism progress? Like, is it progress? Like, is abortion on demand really progress? 
If you look historically, you would notice that every society since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden pretty much have practiced some form of child sacrifice. And some did it as worship to a god. And in the U.S., some of us do it as worship to a god. The god of self, the god of my dreams, the god of my desires, the god of my wants. Not everybody. Like if you really want, I mean, I understand it's not everybody. It's not that simple for everybody. If you really want to combat abortion, you've got to understand and combat poverty as well. But still, is it really progress when we look back on people who sacrifice their children to a God and then we still do the same thing in some ways? Is that really progress? Is it progress when abortion preys on the vulnerable? And so Planned Parenthood puts their clinics in places of poverty and turns a profit by scaring young people into having an abortion. Is that progress? Is it progress when some want to require genetic testing of all the unborn so that we can call out those who might be born with a special need because they don't deserve life? Is that progress? And is that not a really scary like principle, beginning to determine who and who does not deserve life. Like that road has disastrous consequences. Ask the Jews in World War II Germany. Ask the, the Uyghurs in China today. Is this progress? Is it progress when racial equality is being moved away from the content of one's character and biblical brotherhood and instead is based more around critical race theory and intersectionality which inherently produce new segregations. Because listen, racism is still an issue. The zombie of our country's original sin is still wreaking havoc. And anybody who says, well, talking about it makes it worse, that's just stupid. Does talking about abortion make it worse? Does talking about human trafficking make it worse? No, we need to talk about it. But it's a hardened and blind adherence to critical race theory, really progress. Now listen, CRT is not the boogeyman that everybody makes it out to be. But that said, even if you want to go with a chew up the meat, spit out the bones portion, listen, you're going to have to spit out pretty much everything. Is gender fluidity progress? Biological males competing against Biological females, you probably, you know, look at it with swimming and what's going on at the University of Penn, but even in MMA fighting, is that progress? Were biological males fighting a biological female? Parents refusing to identify their children as a boy or a girl until the child self-identifies at a young age. And that's championed and pushed in schools sometimes, applauded, held up as heroic. Now let me let me let me say this. Let me give this caveat. Sometimes nature gets a little haywire and throws a little curveball, right? I have a child who has an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. Okay, things happen sometimes, and so I'm not talking about those instances where a child happens to be born with both, you know, male and female organs. That, that, that's a different deal. That's I'm not talking about that right now. I'm also not talking about us approaching this issue with some sort of cold heart, get out of my face, off my lawn type of attitude. Of all people, Christians should most realize that the world is broken. Sin has affected 
everything. And so when, you know, we come to a man who's struggling and identifying as a woman, listen, we should love her. Get to know her. Hear from her. Walk with her. Serve her. And point her to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. The freedom that is found in having our identity found in Him. Not in how we interiorly feel. Or think we feel. And in shaping our whole rest of our life off of a feeling. That might be fleeting. But my point in all this is like this this idea is wreaking massive I mean, it's wrecking folks. Not understanding manhood and womanhood is taking a huge toll on our generation, on the one that's going to follow, and the consequences of this is not more freedom. It's not progress. It's not better harmony among the genders. No, it's more divorce. It's more pornography. It's more sex trafficking. It's more rape. It's more homosexuality. It's more pedophilia. It's more sexual abuse. It's more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more distress and suicide that comes with the loss of God-given identity. Is this progress? Is the sexual revolution and a pretty much whatever float to your boat type of approach to sexuality, is that progress? Is it progress when you make your entire identity wrapped up around what turns you on? Is that progress? This is the most important thing about me. Now, if you're here and you are struggling with same-sex attraction, SSA, I want you to know that providence loves you and providence is for you just as our Lord is. And we do not view your struggle as some sort of unacceptable sin while others who struggle with pornography, premarital sex, unbiblical divorce are viewed as some sort of acceptable sin. No, 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 no. It is all the same. It's all sexual immorality that we must abstain from and fight. And another thing I want you to know is that every single, like if you struggle with SSA, every single person in this room is a sexual sinner. Every single one. Who's Post-puberty, we'll put it that way. And so we are all in this fight together. It takes different forms for each of us, absolutely, but at its root is the same thing, a deviation from God's design. But the cross of Christ is big enough to cover all sexual sin for anyone who will repent and believe. There are no prerequisites to the gospel. And the gospel is not Jesus plus attraction to the opposite sex. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then out of that, a following of him and taking up your cross daily, whatever that cross may look like for you, it's the call for all of us to take up our cross daily. But is it really progress when the approach to life is just whatever makes me most happy? Is that progress? And and that's the fundamental thought behind all of this culture of death. It's the worship of the psychological self. Who we believe we are. Who we define ourselves as being in our inner self. My most true self. And so what makes me happy and what I want to do. And a a total avoidance of self-denial. A total avoidance of any level of suffering. This is 
ultimate in my life, and therefore we get to do what we want to do with no consequences because I've got to be true to me and to my true self. And the only consequence that exists at all is anyone who would dare to disagree with me. If you disagree with me, then you are evil. If you disagree with me, then you are canceled. You do not deserve respect or anything because you disagree with me. Tolerance for any other voice, be darned. Is that progress where we can't even talk about disagreement? Is there not a better way? And there is. And so number two in your notes, a better way. And that better way is God's culture of life founded in his word. Where it's not about you and your fallen definition of who you think you really are in your inner self. No, it's about God and his definition of who you are. And according to God, your true self is this. And I I got these two words from a book my men's group's doing. Resplendent and ruined. That's who we are. We are resplendent and we're ruined. Resplendent because we all bear the mark of the image of God. More about that in a second. Ruined because we have all been ruined by sin. We have all been ruined by the fall. The sin nature we inherit, okay, original sin, and then the sin we carry out on our own. All of us carry in us the culture of death because the wages of sin is death, and we are all sinners. And so ruined, marred, broken, that's us. But we can also be redeemed, and that's the whole point of the gospel. The gospel is not, and I want to make sure we understand this as we're talking about culture of life, culture and death, The gospel is not that there's, you know, good guys and there's bad guys and we want to be with the good guy group. No, the gospel is that there are bad guys and there are Jesus. And we are all part of the bad guy group. There's only one good guy. There's only one hero. And he, in love, gave himself to rescue all of us bad guys. Who are all in the same boat. Do not go with a them, like there's... We are all in this boat. We are the bad guys. We are the sinners. And Jesus came in love to rescue us by living a perfect life because we're all sexual sinners. Jesus wasn't. Dying in our place for our sin, paying the penalty we owed, rising to bring forgiveness and eternal life and adoption into his family. For anyone who would believe. And so we're all ruined. We can all be redeemed. But even if not, that resplendent mark of the image of God remains on every single person who has ever lived or who will ever live. Meaning that they are worthy of dignity and respect and value and life. And so look at Genesis 1 with me. Angela read it just a minute ago. Don't know if her microphone was working or not, so maybe you didn't hear it, but we'll read it again. Genesis chapter 1. It's on page 1 in my Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. 
Then God said, let us, Trinitarian language here, make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 says it twice. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So binary and both. Male and female both image God. And so, friends, this is why human life is sacred. Which is what sanctity of life means. It's the sacredness of life. And it's sacred because every single person who has ever lived or who will ever ever live, every single person who has been conceived or will be conceived, whether that's through sexual union or in a lab in a dish, every single person has been made in the image of God. Theologically, this is called the Imago Dei, which is just Latin for image of God. And what it's referring to is the fact that God has put in us, he, like he's made us in his image. That is, he has given us some spiritual, intellectual, moral component that the rest of creation lacks. As awesome as it may be, only mankind has been made in the image of God. Mankind alone has been stamped with the Imago Dei. And this applies to all people. All people. Every single person is made in the image of God. There's never been a person who was not made in the image of God. And there won't ever be a person who wasn't made in the image of God. Every human, from the unborn to the orphan to widows and the elderly, persons of disability and special needs, Sex slaves and trafficked persons to the destitute, impoverished, starving, those struggling to survive because of dirty water, illegal immigrants, refugees, people of different religions, ethnicities, sexual orientation, and yes, even different political or philosophical persuasions all made, equally made, in the image of God. Biblically, the sanctity of life encompasses all of this. And what that means then is that all people, therefore, have inherent and equal worth and value and integrity. Well, dignity. Because we're all ruined. We're not very, we don't have very much integrity. And all people are therefore deserving of respect, kindness, and bare minimum basic human rights, like the right to life. I mean, is this not a better way to value all people? And it also means this. It means that you are made in the image of God. And you are therefore deserving of worthy. You are deserving of worth and value and respect and dignity. You were created by the Most High God on purpose with a purpose, every single one of you. And so for those of you who maybe struggle a little bit with this at times, what is my purpose? Why am I even here? I'm such a screw-up. I'm such a horrible person. Drink this down. You were made by God on purpose. 
There are no accidents with God. Period. Ever. You were made by God on purpose with a purpose. And here's the other thing you've got to think about with this. So is everyone else. So is everyone else. Every life has value. Every life has worth. Every life has dignity. Every life counts. Every life is sacred because it's been made in the image of God equally. There's not some people that are more in the image of God than others. Equally. And so that's why racism, that's why abortion and a whole host of other issues will shrivel up and die when we really get the truth about the Imago Dei. And so to attack any unborn person or image bearer is to attack the very image of God in them. And so, all right, kind of, I, I get that. There's a culture of death and there's a culture of life. But what do we do? What, how, do we, how do we live in the midst of this? What do, we, what do we do? Well, first of all, it just means we need to learn to see the world through this lens. That everybody is made in the image of God. And so we approach all people then with empathy, not as enemies. We approach with empathy, not as enemies. Like some of us probably need this, you know, hard rewiring in our brain. Empathy, not enemies. Empathy, not enemies. Empathy, not enemies. Like just a mantra as we engage with people. Empathy, not enemies. I can think about situations in my own life, you know, would be... Um, on the starting line or something for a race, and I've just got kind of a mantra on something, you know, get out fast and relax, get out fast and relax, or cling on and, and hang on, like just little things I've got to remind myself of in that situation, and not cling on like these guys or whatever, but like hang on to them, like cling to the back of this person. And so understanding Empathy, not enemies, understanding we're all resplendent and ruined and choosing to see the image of God in all people with the possibility of seeing them, so resplendent, ruined, redeemed. And that's where we put all, almost all of our eggs in that basket, seeing people redeemed. Like that's our goal as a church. Our primary goal isn't a moral society. That's a good thing. But that's not the church's goal. Our goal is conversion and discipleship in the church. You look at Daniel in Babylon. He's contending in a pagan culture of death for the welfare of the city. You look at the apostles in the Roman Empire. There's not one word in the New Testament about governmental reformation. They weren't sure they wanted that. Instead, it's all about redemption. It's all about obedience to Christ. It's all about faithfulness to His commands. But here in our country, we do have a chance to engage in our own governance. And praise God for that. That's a good thing. And praise God that change can happen and has happened. And we pray that it will keep happening. But still, we must not ever think that politics is the Savior or the mission of the church. 
And it's the end all be all. And we must learn that there is room in a church, a singular church, to disagree on things that aren't crystal clear in Scripture. That our opinions are not infallible. And that even on things that are crystal clear in Scripture, Jesus hates abortion. Crystal clear. There's room to disagree on what strategies might be best to accomplish something. Again, you, my, our opinions are not infallible. And so we must be careful on what we cling to with a closed fist. Don't close your fist around your opinions. Hold your opinions with an open fist. Do close your hands around God's word. But don't try to smuggle in your opinions into God's word. They are two different things. God's word alone is infallible. Our opinions are not. And it's because of this that we speak to a broad spectrum of the sanctity of life. Because God is crystal clear that all people bear his image. And therefore deserve value, respect, dignity, worth, and life. And so we must not pick and choose what issues of life we want to contend for and which ones we want to ignore. We can't pigeonhole. And we certainly must not be unchristlike jerks even as we engage in very much a Christless culture. Let's just make sure we don't practice a Christless Christianity. And, you know, sometimes I'll see spats online and I just don't engage in that. Period. No one has ever in the history of the world changed their opinion based upon a post. And so I just do not engage in online arguments. They do nothing. But I'll see people engage in those things, and it, it, you know, and it winds up, I, I think, you know, if you ask them about it, it would wind up being very childlike. Well, I only hit him because he first hit me. Really? Like, don't we teach our kids? Well, you know what? You don't have to retaliate. You can turn the other cheek. In fact, there's one guy who said to do that. I mean, did it ever, like, when did it ever become okay to be rude or just downright mean or condescending to someone who does not share your opinion? Where did that come from? Is that progress? Our call, our call is to keep being faithful. Day by day, step by step, in the big things, And in the little things, drip, 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 brightly shining a culture of life in the midst of a culture of death. And recognizing that we are sojourners and exiles here. That this world is not our home. We are members of a different kingdom. The church, Christ's kingdom, the people of God. Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of heaven. And we are therefore ambassadors from that kingdom in this kingdom, which is a foreign land. Which means that if we want to live for Jesus, we will be out of step with the culture. Period. Dot. Just as Jesus and the disciples were. 
And so, folks, we just need to know that. We need to just accept it. To live for Christ is to be an outsider in the world. Now, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. Not that the world is unimportant. In fact, our kingdom vision pushes us into the world to care for the least of these, to speak up for those who do not have a voice, to Micah 5.8, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. And so to live up to the biblical ethic of the sanctity of life, we have to be consistent. I mean, clearly we're not to kill babies, we're not to euthanize the elderly, but it goes beyond that. We're to love our neighbor, we're to care for our neighbor, and not try to figure out who we can exclude as being our neighbor. And so even as we contend for the unborn, let us do so being pro-life all the way. Not all people. Every single human life is valuable. Every single person has been created by God in his own image. Every person, and let us not grow weary. Nationwide change has happened before. Wilberforce in England, Lincoln here, and the abolitionists, Martin Luther King Jr., And it can happen again. We can see that. And so let's speak the truth boldly. In love. Both of those things. Don't water down the truth. And don't weaken love. Let's speak the truth boldly. In love. Like Dr. King 50 years ago. He was peaceful. He was bold. He argued from a sanctity of life, a biblical ethic. Read his sermons. Read his writings. That's how he argued. And he did not get into a tit-for-tat, venom-spewing process. He talked a lot like Jesus did. May we do the same. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray. Father, would you give us a heart like yours? For us in this room who have been redeemed, We have been given a new heart with new desires, new affections. And may they be constantly being made new. Constantly being shaped and transformed by the renewing of our mind to being more Christ-like day by day by day by day. Being honest with ourselves 
allowing the Holy Spirit to search us and change us and make us more Christ-like. Not just in belief, but in how we treat others. Especially in how we treat those who would disagree with us. May we be the light of Christ. And draw people with honey, not vinegar. In Christ's name, amen.